Yes. Um, it's good to be with you this morning, as uh, as always. I always enjoy being here and um, feel like I'm with a second family, and so uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here and hopefully be encouraging to you. I, I was just encouraged. I don't know who picked the song this morning. Was that Jonathan or uh, Grace? Did you pick the song? Um, this this song is one that you know we probably sing all the time, but in many ways is speaking to themes that we're going to talk about today in both Sunday school and the morning service, and, and was a great encouragement to me to think about. Um, God is our great God, and we want Him to guard our heart and guard our soul through the evils that we face, and he is worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Um, a, a great encouragement um, as we were singing this morning and a reminder of God's faithfulness. So I look forward to what he's going to show us in his word. Before before we do start reading and I take off in a hurry to get through the long passage, let's go ahead and pray and give God more thanks that he deserves. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you are great, that you are worthy of our praise, that you do protect us through evil. You do use evil in ways we often don't understand to accomplish your good purposes. And yet we also see, as we'll see this morning in Sunday school, that you are a compassionate, gracious God who is long-suffering. When we should do better, when we should be more faithful, you, you are still many times very patient and merciful and, and give second chances and delay uh, negative consequences. Um, we, we thank you that you are such a great, wonderful, awesome God. And we pray that you would use your word to encourage us, to make us to be more like Christ, uh, that we would more consistently give you the praise and trust you through the hard times as we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to admit um, we're in 2 Kings again um, and I had a real struggle. I normally am very good about writing my notes about what, I, what passage I covered at a church and for some reason I'm not 100% sure whether it was 2 Kings 13 last time or 2 Kings 14 last time. I'm pretty sure it was 13. But part of the reason I struggle is because 13 and 14 have some similar themes in them. So whether it's a complete duplicate of last time, I don't think it is. Um, it may sound like what you heard last time, but I've been reminded and told to, and I know this that even if it was last week I spoke on this, we don't all have perfect memories and so probably wouldn't be sure um, uh, in many of those situations anyway. So I trust this will be a familiar theme, but hopefully an encouraging one as we look at 2 Kings 14. Before I read that though, just wanted to put out there what we're going to see. Um, we're going to be reminded here of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. This is a constant theme we see out through the book of Kings that at best 
the kings and the people are inconsistent in their devotion to God. We see a little more consistency in the south and virtually no good things out of the north um, with a very rare exception. Um, but even in the south there's inconsistent following of the Lord and we'll see some of that today um, that the king of the south is doing a few good things but then does some really bad things and um, God deals with that. But we also see at the end of the chapter that God continues to be forbearing with the nation of Israel in spite of their sin. So we're reminded of this theme that God is faithful, God is compassionate, and he shows mercy to his people even though they don't deserve his kindness and goodness to them. So I also want to deal with another point because I think this is a common problem in our theology. We recognize that God is just, God is good, He punishes evil and He rewards good. But many times we oversimplify that and assume if we do good, boom, automatically all this good is going to happen. And if we do bad, boom, right away, automatically, all this bad is going to happen. In the grand scheme, yes, God is just and He will judge and He will sort all of that out. But it's more complicated and the timing doesn't always work that way. And sometimes punishment is delayed to give people opportunity to repent, perhaps being one of the reasons, or because God is compassionate. So we need to guard ourselves against this thinking that someone does bad, boom, lightning's going to strike, God's going to wipe them out, right? God is a forbearing, patient, loving God. So we're going to see that in 2 Kings 14, 1-7. Let's start there. It says, In the second year of Joash, son of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoiadim of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all that Joash his father had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it came about, as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his hand, that he killed his servants who had slain the king's father. But the sons of the slayers he did not put to death, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, as the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the sons, nor the sons be put to death for the fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. He killed of Edom in the valley of salt ten thousand, and took Selah by war, and named it Jockfield to this day. Alright, so we see a focus here on the southern kingdom. And as we go through the book of 2 Kings um, and 1 Kings, we see this constant shifting between the southern kingdom, northern kingdom. And it sort of ended in 13 with the focus on the northern kingdom. Um, that was where Elijah, or Elisha, was, was dying. And uh, he was used by God to announce that there was going to be some victory for the north, 
And if you remember, the king was to beat on the ground as a sign of the victory, and he only hit the ground three times, and Elisha was mad at him that he didn't hit the ground five or six times to have a more complete victory. Uh, but now, we're shifting focus again to the south, and we'll finish up with the north at the end of the chapter. But we're focused on the south, and we have Amaziah here is the king in the south. He is king for 29 years, it tells us at the beginning. And it's estimated that this is around 796 B.C. to 767 B.C., roughly in that time frame. And he is the king of the south, and it, and it makes this positive statement in verse 3. It says, he does right in the sight of the Lord. Um, but that's not to be understood as a, he always did right, he universally did right, um, but it was he did some things right, and it even makes a rare comparison. Did you catch that rare comparison that it made there with the king of the south? Who's he compared to? David. All right. It's not, not, not quite as good as David, right? David is, humanly speaking, kind of the standard that the kings are often compared against. If someone really does well, David is sort of held up as the standard they're compared against. Now, we know the rest of the story. So ultimately, Christ is the standard that none of them meet, even David. But David is often a human, ex uh, sinful example, though he is, of a, a good king uh, that, for the most part, um, followed the heart of God in carrying out the rule in Israel. So he didn't quite do that well. But he's doing well in some things, and, and we're going to see a couple of those things here in just a minute. But we also see in verse 4 an exception noted. Did you catch in verse 4 what that exception is? What's the problem here in Israel? Idol worship, right? And in the high places, right? There's this false worship that goes on, and according to the law, the kings were supposed to deal with that. They were supposed to wipe that out because they were to worship in, in the one central place that was established for worship. For a while it was Shiloh and then eventually it becomes Jerusalem, right, where the temple is. They're to worship in one place. That's the place there to worship the Lord, but what happened is many times these sites that had been set up by uh, the, the Canaanites that were there before them get repurposed and reused for this kind of false worship. Um, or perhaps sometimes Israel set them up themselves. But these are places of false worship, and the king was to deal with that. And in this case, Amaziah wasn't consistent in getting rid of those things. And, and that was a fault of his. But I think we should also take note that though it's a fault of the king, it's also an indication of the heart of the people. In fact, it says in verse 4, as you read that, only the high places were not taken away. Okay, king's responsibility to enforce. But it says, the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So there are at least a number of Israelites committed to worship that was not honoring to the Lord. So we have evidence here, though, 
a key is doing some good things. It's not completely good in every respect. And this is a problem that permeates the book of Kings. This problem of idolatry is an ongoing problem which ultimately will lead to the destruction and, and captivity of Israel. Not, not the complete and utter destruction of Israel as a people, but they will be displaced from their nation, the land that God has given them, and they will go into captivity. The north, the north will be assimilated into Assyria, and the south will go to Babylon eventually. And this theme is repeated because it's one of the key problems of Israel that leads to that outcome. So, we also see this king, though, is committed to doing justice. His father was murdered in conspiracy. So, he, in eventually getting established as king, uh, eventually decides to deal with those people that had wrongfully killed his father. This is the appointed king, and this was wrong of these men to kill the king, and so therefore he executes judgment on those. But this distinction is made in verse 6. It says, But the sons of the slayers he did not put to death according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. So this king put the guilty people to death, but he did not put their children to death. So this wasn't an act of wrath, just taking out vengeance on people because they killed his dad. This was a just act, an appropriate act, and he's praised because he acted in this case, according to the law, in executing judgment on the guilty. So that's good. Why would this be pointed out? I would suggest because it's unusual. It was common for people to act in vengeance and wipe people out. God put this law in place to establish the righteous way to deal with crime, and the right way is to punish the guilty. But human nature, because we're sinners, is to take out vengeance on people and go beyond the guilty. But he did right here following law, so it's a good example. He also has a victory, which is a good thing. It says in verse 7, He killed uh, of Edom in the Valley of Salt and, and, and took Selah by war and named it Jachtiel this day. There was, there was a regular set of battles that would happen with the kings and the land has been given to them by God and they were to expand. Um, victory would seem to be a, a, an indication of God's blessing and help in Israel. However, we also come quickly on the heels of this with problems and his ultimate defeat. So let's read verses 8 to 14 to see how it goes next for Amaziah. It says, Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face each other, Jehoash king of Israel sent to Amaziah king of Judah, saying, The thorn bush which is in Lebanon sent to the cedar which is in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud. 
Enjoy your glory and stay at home, for why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, would fall with, and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. Judah was defeated by Israel, and they fled each to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and tore down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. He took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, the hostages also, and returned to Samaria. So, Amaziah has a success. He's done some things right. He's feeling arrogant and overconfident, and he decides he's going to attack the northern kingdom. Is this the first time we've ever seen the north and the south fight? Nope. In fact, uh, I'm sure, I didn't look up all the occurrences, but off the top of my head, I'm confident we had Rehoboam right at the beginning when the split happened. He was getting ready to go up and fight, and uh, I don't remember the exact outcome, but I know uh, the prophet got involved at one point and said, go home, don't do this. This is from God. Uh, God has created this division. Um, and so you need to not fight your brothers. I believe there was another king or two that did this and it didn't go well for them either. But here Amaziah is fighting against the north because of pride. Uh, Jeroboam in the north calls him out and I think he's exactly right. He's had a little victory so he's arrogant thinking he can take on the bigger country of the north and it doesn't go well. Um, so he loses. So, we see that he's defeated here, and, um, uh, you, you know, we might ask why. why. Why would God allow this, right? Of the two kingdoms, which, which one is closer to having the legitimate right to rule, trying to do some things that are right, at least some presence of proper worship, I mean, all of those things would be in favor of the South, right? So, so why does God allow this? And often, we're not given those answers, right? Um, and the same things happen in our lives. Um, we expect, we, you know, we've done some right things, some good should come, it doesn't always go that way. Um, or sometimes we know we've done something wrong and it doesn't go as bad as we thought it might. Why, why do things work out that way? We don't always know. In this case, I do think we are given at least a little bit of an insight into what was going on here. It's not revealed in Kings, but if you go over to the parallel passage in Chronicles, I think we learn something that's helpful to understand at least part of why God may have brought the defeat to the south. So look, look over at 2 Chronicles 25, and we'll look at uh, 14 to 16, 2 Chronicles 25. But we'll be right back in 2 Kings here in a minute. So don't lose your place there.
So simply that, that defeat in Edom may not have been as good an idea or responded to probably by Amaziah as it might have seemed on the surface there in 2 Kings. Look what happens. It says, now after Amaziah came from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought the gods of the sons of Seir, set them up as his gods, bowed down before them, and burned incense to them. I've got to pause there. <laughs> I know this is human depravity, right, on display here. But what utter nonsense. He just defeated this nation. What makes him think their gods are superior? Does it make any sense? <sighs> but instead of glorifying God and destroying those idols like he should have, he takes them, keeps them, and worships them. How foolish. And, and what's God's response? Verse 15. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said, Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? As he was talking with him, the king said to him, Have we appointed you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? Then the prophet stopped and said, I know that God has planned to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Well, there you go. There's the rest of the story, as, as they say. So this king has a victory, overconfident, uh, or what? I'm not exactly sure, but he decides to take these false gods and make them his own. Absolute, utter foolishness. And God, therefore, is determined to destroy him because of that foolish act. So that's why the South is defeated here because the foolish king and his false worship. So we see that the king is defeated and we then go on to see how his life finishes up in, in humiliation. So let, let's look at uh, 15 to 22 back in 2 Kings 14 verses 15 to 22. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, and his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeho 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 sorry, Jeroboam, his son, became king in his place. Like I said, there's this mixture back and forth between the north and the south. But verse 17, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? They conspired against him in Jerusalem and fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David, all the people of Judah took Azariah, he was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. So, he ultimately dies in shame, is murdered in a conspiracy, um, but 
Um, I forgot to mention, if we were to go back up to, I think it's verse 13, there's a period of time he's actually captured and, uh, and taken prisoner um, by Jehoash of, of the north. So we see in verse 13 that yeah, he is captured there. Um, so there is this difficulty sometimes when you look at the, the timing of how long a person was a king. And I think this is an example of one of those challenges. Um, Amaziah was captured, and so when they reckon his time of 29 years, it includes that period of time that he was captured, but his son, Azariah here, or also called Uzziah, maybe a name you're more familiar with, um, he becomes king while his father is captured. So there is an overlap of their rules. So if you were to look at the timing and try to figure out how that reconciles the, the length of years, sometimes things like that happen so that they overlap. So um, maybe a little detail, but that, that's what's going on. Um, he was captured, ultimately killed in a conspiracy. Um, he started well, did some good things, but ultimately did a very dastardly thing and it resulted in his getting captured and ultimately killed in judgment by God. Um, we also see now a focus on the northern kingdom here as we finish out in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14. Let's, let's read now about the time here with Jeroboam II um, as king in the north. So look, let's look at verse 23, and we'll read 23 to 27 here. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not part from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Alright, so we have a focus here on Jeroboam the second. So, a little bit of background. I, I know I've been here multiple times, spread out over multiple years, so certainly it's been a long time since some of these names are covered, but who is the most wicked king of the north? Well, I mean, yes, there's a couple debates, but where does it start with the king of the north setting up the false worship? Who is that king? Jeroboam. Jeroboam, right? And he is, so like David in the south is constantly the reference point, Jeroboam the first is often that reference point for the north. He is the one that set up those calves that they were to worship in the two different places, right? And none of the kings of the north ever completely stopped that false worship from happening. 
Now there was there was one king of the north that God had some positive things to say because he carried out something God wanted done. Do, do you remember who that king was? Joash? That's not the name I'm looking for. Maybe you can remind me later of uh, another thing he did. But well, I'm thinking of a guy that God said, I need you to go wipe out this evil king and his whole family. Jehu. Jehu. I heard. I don't know where I heard it. But yes, Jehu. Jehu is the one. He was the commander of Ahab's army. And God sent a prophet. Remember, uh, Jehu is having some kind of meal or some kind of discussion with some of the other people in the army. And this prophet bursts in and anoints him and, and says, you're the king of, or no, it says, I want to speak with you privately. And then he anoints him and says, you're the king of, of Israel and your job is to wipe out the house of Ahab. And he runs away and his friends are like, what was all of that about? And he's like, oh, you know the, the guy and there's nobody. And they're like, no, 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 what did he say? And Jehu says what he was told, and they got in line and recognized him as the king of the north, and then Jehu was very zealous in carrying out the execution of Ahab's family. In some ways, there's a couple times where he may have gone a little too far, but God says some good things about Jehu in how he carried that out and fulfilled what God intended to happen to the house of Ahab. So a promise that God made to Jehu was that he would have sons that would be king or descendants of his, so sons, grandsons, you understand, that would be king to the fourth generation. So Jeroboam is that third generation. This Jeroboam II is the third generation. There'll be one more, though he'll get wiped out pretty quickly. So God is keeping that promise that he made to Jehu for his faithfulness in executing judgment on the house of Ahab. So, this is part of what we started the discussion with. It's complicated sometimes. Jeroboam II does evil, it says, and yet he reigns 41 years. And, and God allows him to accomplish some things for Israel. Why? He's a wicked king. Well, I think in part because of the promise to Jehu. And God is preserving Jehu's descendants to fulfill that promise. But we also see a key point that we saw in chapter 13. And we see emphasized here again in these verses that we read. So let's look at 26 and 27 again to see that point of emphasis. It says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. So, the northern kingdom is full of idolatry, false worship. The leadership of the north is wicked, committed to wickedness. And yet, God is compassionate. 
He sees their affliction. He sees their hardship. He is compassionate on them. He takes pity on them. And he is not going to ultimately eradicate them from the earth, though their sins deserve that. He chooses to show compassion. There is coming a day in which the northern kingdom will be overtaken and disassembled and people shipped all throughout the world by the Assyrians as a judgment for their idolatry and their failure to repent after multiple opportunities and hundreds of years of opportunity. That's coming, but not yet, because God is merciful. God is patient. God is long-suffering. And so he demonstrates that here with the North. And, and as we said, um, even though the North, in a way, is more wicked than some of what we see in the South, God still uses the wicked North as a tool of judgment in a way on the South for, for some of their wickedness. And we see this pattern in other, pla other places of Scripture as well. God uses other wicked countries to attack and uh, do harm to Israel as a judgment for their, their sins. Um, but that doesn't mean those countries that God's using are righteous either. In fact, in, in multiple examples of that, God uses those wicked countries to bring judgment on Israel, but then promises destruction will come to those countries later, and does. So God works through human uh, instruments and instruments of government to accomplish his purposes and bring in judgment and, and changes. Um, but yet we see here that God is merciful to the people of Israel even though they deserve judgment. So we see at the end, we, we can read uh, 20 and 29 just real quickly to wrap up what happens in the chapter. Um, it says, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, and, and this is Jeroboam II, as we said, all that he did in his might, how he fought, and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, and are not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son became king in his place. The fourth generation of Jehu, that would be the last of Jehu, um, but in faithfulness to his promises, God is preserving them. And so what do we take away from this? Um, it can be difficult and it can be challenging to see, but I think a, a huge part is what we were talking about here in verses 26 and 27. It's on purpose, I believe, at the end of the section to draw attention and emphasize that our God is compassionate and merciful. Now, <clears throat> I'm looking out at this room, <clears throat> and I'm assuming the vast majority know Jesus Christ, and you are a child of God if, if you've placed your faith and trust in Him. As a child of God, we have reason to expect God will be good and faithful because He's our loving Heavenly Father, right? 
that we all have to acknowledge, even though that may be true in our lives, we're still wicked sinners, right? Jesus says to his disciples, and I'm not quoting 100% right, so it's my rough recall of the verse, but Jesus is saying, even after you've done everything that you were commanded, say we are nothing but unprofitable servants, right? The, the idea is that even if we completely obey God as we ought to, we're, we're sinners who deserve his punishment and wrath, and ultimately the only reward entitled to us is that which Christ has accomplished on our behalf, right? We're not entitled to that. It's what Christ accomplished. It's given to us as a gift. We are sinners. We deserve God's punishment. We deserve his wrath. And yet, he delights in mercy. He is compassionate. He is patient. So, hopefully, this will be a reminder to drive us to prayer to praise God for his mercy and kindness, to praise him for the blessings he gives us because we don't deserve them. And to be quick to run to him for forgiveness when we do sin because we do, even though we shouldn't. Knowing that he is quick to forgive and desires to forgive and is glorified in forgiving us. So let's praise our God because he is merciful. And I guess I would make one application as well as we think about our own country. I have to confess this about myself. I get very angry and stirred up at the things that go on in our country. And I imagine whatever side of whatever particular issue everyone's on, there's something about which that is true for most, if not all of us. I get angry demanding, wanting God to do a certain thing or fix a certain thing, right? God is not obligated to fix it in our country, right? We absolutely should pray for his mercy. We absolutely should pray that he will deal with things. He'll bring repentance. But ultimately, the real need is not an extremely patriotic country, the real need is a godly country, right? Repentance is what is needed. That's what we should pray for. But we should be careful about expectations about what he will, should, or must do. We have to trust him. We see testimony through the kings. God works through wicked kings as well as good kings. And absolutely, we want to pray for and get good leaders. We absolutely should do that. But we're not always going to get that, as is obviously seen. But we need to trust God through it and praise Him for the mercy and kindness He shows us in spite of what we as a nation and we as people deserve. Let's give Him praise because He is compassionate and merciful and He can still work in spite of whoever is in power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are kind, compassionate, and sovereign. Help our trust in you to grow. Help our appreciation for who you are and what you do to grow as well. And help us to be faithful, Father. Help us not to be arrogant. Help us not to 
take a victory and make too much of it or credit ourselves or, or wrongly give credit where it doesn't belong. Help us, Father, to recognize your goodness and kindness. And anything we have, anything good that comes out of our life is your blessing. And we owe you thanks and praise for it. Help us to be reminded of that. Help us to be renewed in our commitment to give you praise for the good things you bring in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.